You're listening to the Disney One by One podcast, a chronological look at every Disney animated classic and beyond. Here's your host, Mike Rolfing. Hello and welcome back to Disney One by One. Yes, we have another bonus episode this week. Uh, you listened to our Rescuers Down Under episode on Wednesday. And uh, today we have another incredible special guest. Um, I had never seen this movie before until watching it a couple weeks ago when we recorded. And uh, the music just stuck out incredibly. And we're like, who wrote this music if you listen, if you listen to our episode? And we were fawning over it. And it was Mr. Bruce Broughton who is uh, joining us here today. He is a Emmy winner, um, Oscar and Grammy nominee. He's written mov- uh, music for movies, TVs, theme parks, and even for uh, Seth MacFarlane of uh, Family Guy fame. So, Bruce, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us on Disney One by One. Yeah, it's a pleasure. You've done a number of Disney projects, Homeward Bound, Three Musketeers, Honey, I Blew Up the Kid. One of the things that I just wanted to start with, because this piqued my curiosity, is Fantasia 2000. Yeah. I was under the impression that this was all done by uh, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra with James Levine, but you were involved in Rhapsody and Blue in somehow, correct? Yeah, you know what happened on that. Rhapsody and Blue was a standalone. Uh, it wasn't originally going to be part of the film. Okay. There, I guess there were a couple of sequences that they were working on that they didn't use, and then they were short. So Rhapsody in Blue was a special project that Eric Goldberg, the animator, spectacular animator, um, was going to do on his own time. Um, He was sort of taking time off from working at Disney, and I think Michael Eisner had uh, given him the time off and and given him the go-ahead to do this project. So what he did was he found a track he liked of the Rhapsody in Blue, edited it down, and then did his animation to that. Well, they couldn't use that. But again, this this had nothing to do with Fantasia. This just had to do, this was just going to be a short film. So I got a call uh, asking me if I could reconstruct the track based on what he had been animating to. So it's that takes a lot of really tight um, <laughs> timing and all that kind of stuff. But it's something that I, I knew how to do. So I said, yeah, I can do that. So we spent a day and we re-recorded Rhapsody in Blue. What happened, by the time the album came out, they re-recorded it with my soloist, Ralph Grierson. Uh, They re-recorded it and Ralph and the orchestra went on tour through the world. (laughs) And so I thought, well, it worked out well for them. Actually, it worked out well for me too because it was kind of fun to be on Fantasia. But it was, as I say, it was not part of the original film. It was just something that they they decided to put in when they could. I think that's one of the greatest Disney things ever made is the Rhapsody in Blue segment of uh, Fantasia 2000. Well, that's that's Eric. That that was entirely Eric Goldberg. Um, He's really, 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 really good. And I took my I took my wife our first date. Uh, we went and saw Rhapsody in Blue at the St. Louis Symphony, and it's 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 quite an important song in my life. Cool. And it oh, okay. really it, it really started with uh, watching Fantasia 2000 as a kid. Oh, that's neat. That's neat. We'll we'll dive into Rescuers Down Under in a minute. I, I'd love to just talk a little bit about growing up as a kid. Were you always drawn to music and film music, or was that sort of a later thing in life? I was born into a musical family. So my grand I had a grandfather who was a composer. I had an uncle who was a um, songwriter, an aunt who was a pianist. Uh, My parents were both good amateur musicians. They both played and read music. They could sing. They each played two instruments. My brother ended up being a professional trombonist. He was uh, played in the studios. He also did a lot of composing. And so I learned to play piano when I was about six. I guess I started taking lessons when I was about six. And around the same time, 
I got handed a trumpet and say, here, learn this. So I had to learn two instruments. When I was a boy, I wanted, this is pretty well known. When I was a boy, I wanted to learn, I wanted to be a, um, I wanted to be an animator. And so that was why the rescuers thing was such a big deal. Because when they asked me to do rescuers, I think it was based upon Silverado because they had this um, um, adventure movie. It didn't have any songs in it. Yeah. And it was just going to be an adventure movie. And I think they wanted an adventure score. And I had just done a couple of years before Silverado. So they thought, oh, you know, let's get the guy who did Silverado. And the thing is, a lot of guys don't like doing animation. But, hey, you know, I wanted to have their baby. So I said, yeah, I'd like to do it. It'd be great, you know. So um, that's that's how that came about. But um, until I was about 14 or 15, I thought I was going to be an animator. And then I changed over to becoming a musician. So it was, a, you know, it was a good choice. Like, you know, talking about Eric Goldberg, who did Rhapsody in Blue, when you see somebody like Eric, you're really glad you didn't become an animator because he's really good. And I'm, <laughs> I'm better as a composer. I wouldn't have been a good animator. Did you grow up watching Disney movies? Did you have much of a history with Disney as, as a kid? Yeah, I mean, you know, when the Mouseketeers came out, when Disneyland was a TV program before it was a park, Disney was promoting, you know, the park like crazy. And I remember the park opened on a Sunday, and I was there on Wednesday. Wow. I was 10 years old, and my brother and I were dropped off at the front of um, Disneyland, and we spent the whole day, just the two. I was 10, he was 8, and we went running through the park, going on all these rides. I mean, it was spectacular. So, yeah, I, Disney was uh, my hero when I was a kid. So by the time I got to do this, I was pretty well acquainted with animation and, and what they had done. And yeah, I was really happy to work work on this thing. So I've, I've had a nice association with Disney, particularly with all the theme parks that came after that, because there was a lot of that, you know. Yeah. Was Rescuers done under your first Disney project? I did a theme park thing called The Making of Me. Yeah. Which may have been, may have been before Rescuers, but Rescuers was definitely the first... I don't think I did any TV for them. I think it was the first film project I did for, for Disney, yeah. Yeah, and it makes sense, the Silverado connection, because it's sort of that epic adventure yeah, yeah. Type, of, type of film. So when you were brought on to Rescuers Down Under, at what point does the composer come into a movie like that? How early on are you involved? Um, it can depend. I mean, on any movie, you can come in at the very beginning. Like on Silverado, I came in when they before they had shot it. We were just talking about the script. Sometimes I come in after the movie's done, like um, the next movie I did was Young Sherlock Holmes. That movie was basically done, and I came in at the last minute and just scrambled to get the thing finished. Rescuers was it's an animation thing. They had been working on it for a long time, and um, I got into it probably about halfway through the process. They were still recording the voices. Um, they had a bunch of scenes that were pencil. Well, actually, they had a bunch of scenes that were still just... What do you call it? Uh, storyboards. Yeah, story. Yeah, storyboards. And then every once in a while you'd get a, a pencil sketch, and then you'd get color. Man, when it had color, everybody get excited. Wow, look at that! Yeah, it's really good. <laughs> um, and I remember the first screening I went to it. It was a really interesting process. They first of all they show all the storyboards. They film all the storyboards, and then they put in voices that can be anybody. Probably the animators. You know, anybody. Just they take a part and they they read the lines, so you get an idea of how the film plays. And then as they okay certain scenes, it goes into sketches and then it goes into color and they start recording the voices. And they spend a lot of time on the voices because the voices give you an awful lot of information. I mean, it's a great example that I found was one of the shows I did way after Rescuers was Bambi 2. And when I was a boy, like I'm talking like 1947, uh, I'm two or three years old, I'm watching Bambi with my mother in the theater. 
And I remember exactly what those voices sounded like. So now in Bambi 2, which is like 100 years later, they've got the same voices. And these people are probably dead, you know. And I'm, I said, how'd you do that? Well, they find people who have kind of a similar voice, and then they work with them, they work with them, they work with them until they get it exactly the way they want it. I know you're not asking about this, but I'll tell you about it anyway. Yeah, it's fine. On Homeward Bound... They had a problem with Homeward Bound because the animals weren't really, it wasn't a CGI show. The animals would look at each other and then they would talk, sort of like it was mental communication. And uh, they had a problem on the first go-around where they had just recorded voices. So what they did, the second time they, they dumped the first actors and they brought in the new actors and they hired a producer who was an animation producer. He was one of the guys who had produced Fantasia. And because he was used to working with actors in animation, he was great with the animals, you know. So that whole, I mean, the whole movie just suddenly looked completely different because the performances of the actors were done by guys who had a background in animation. So it's, it's you really can't underestimate how much time they spend on every line in one of these movies. I mean, even Robin Williams and guys like that who are great at improvising, I'm sure there's like thousands of minutes of Robin Williams that are, aren't used, you know. So then little by little, the film just starts to take uh, take shape. And in this, they have they have temporary music, uh, music that sort of plays a scene or that sort of gives the mood or sort of gives the energy. And uh, it's sort of like a, um, uh, I mean, it's just something they deal with trying to get a feel of how the movie's going to be. So, yeah, it took a process. It took a while. I, I think I probably came in at the last third of the movie. Um, we mentioned in our episode this week, you were on board for Home Alone, at least originally around the same time. What was yeah. the story behind that? It was real simple. Um, I got a call from the John Hughes company to look at this movie. And um, my music editor and I looked at it. And then I went to talk to the guys about when it was going to be done, because I was already signed to do um, Rescuers, and I was hot to do Rescuers. So I said, well, okay, I, I'd like to do it, but I've got this animated thing, and it's going to score on such and such and such a date. Well, that's when we're going to record Home Alone. Well, can't you change it? Because usually you can change it. You know? No, those are the days we have to have because of our distribution. I said, well, then I'm not going to be able to do it. That was that was it. So that was my Home Alone story. And then uh, they tracked down John Williams somehow. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, that's actually kind of common because everybody gets busy. So John did Home Alone. I did Baby's Day Out, which was a um, John Hughes movie, but Jerry Goldsmith was supposed to have done it, and Jerry got busy, so I did it. Jerry was supposed to do Tombstone, so I did it. He got busy. Jerry was supposed to do one of the first big um, uh, Disney theme park things, um, cinema, not Synergy, uh, The Visionarium. Yeah. He fell out, so I got into it. You know, And so, yeah, we follow each other all the time. Um, guys have followed me. I followed them. It's no big deal. You know, some, Somebody's got to do it. So, Rescues Down Under, you find out this movie is a, a sequel to a movie from the 70s. It takes yeah. place in Australia. What's yeah. sort of your first step in defining how you want to work on this project? The, the Disney process, I don't know whether this started with Jeffrey Katzenberg, who was at Disney at that time, or whether this was always the way they worked. But this was my first movie, so this is what happened to me. Um, basically, I looked at it as a, as a dramatic movie, right? And I wrote, I started writing, I started writing music, and then I got a call. I'd been working on it for about three or four weeks. I got a call, and they said they wanted to record some of the music. They wanted to hear it. Um, so they said, take some of the cues that are most representative of the score, and we're going to re we're going to record them today to see how you're doing. You know. So I did that. I think I recorded a main title. I recorded two or three scenes of 
those things that I recorded, only one of them stayed in the movie, which was the breakout scene um, where the, all the animals break out of the cages. You know? uh, the main title didn't make it, which was a good thing because the main title wasn't very good. Um, <laughs> a couple of other things didn't make it. And then I got an early morning, like a 7 o'clock in the morning meeting with Jeffrey Katzenberg. And he went through um, very specifically what he was looking for in the movie. And one of the things he said, he wanted to, to make it very ethnic sounding. That was going to be a big deal. And he wanted a good theme. Uh, he really liked the theme to The Boy Who Could Fly, which turned out to be my movie. So I had I had a very good idea after that meeting of what to do. So I went and I completely rewrote it, and um, that was basically it. I mean, Jeffrey was very specific and you know very good to deal with, very clear, particularly in the music. Did you work with him more or the directors more? I know there were two. There are two directors on this film. Yeah, Hendel and Mike. Um, yeah, I, I worked with the directors. I mean, after that, I didn't see Jeffrey again until it was all done. No, I did. I did everything with Hendel and Mike, and also Tom Schumacher, who is the producer. And the three of us were sort of like, or the four of us rather, were sort of like the creative couple. If I had problems, or if I had questions about how the show was supposed to go, or the tenor of a scene, I would talk to either Mike or, or Hendel. I know this sounds really stupid, but it was absolutely a love fest. I've hardly worked on anything that I enjoyed so much with people I enjoyed so much. Uh, I saw Mike. A year or two ago, at something we were—I think we were actually showing rescuers, or we we're doing a, an album for rescuers. Uh, I haven't seen Hendel for years, but every once in a while, I'll run into the guys. But it, it was—it was a great, you know, it was a great time. I really enjoyed it. It's a great movie. It is. <laughs> actually, I'm surprised that you never saw it because <laughs> I've had people your age, late twenties, early thirties, telling this happened. I was in England about two weeks ago, and two people came up and told me on the very same day. You wrote my two favorite movies. One was Homeward Bound, and the other one is Rescuers Down Under. Yeah, and that's really common because there were just there were two films, two Disney films, family films that just stuck with people, stuck with kids. You know? oh, we watched Homeward Bound all the time. Yeah, I remember seeing the trailer to Rescuers Down Under on some other VHS tape that I had. And so I was very familiar with it visually and you know, yeah. at least from like the two minute preview. But watching it just a few weeks ago, it just blew me away. Yeah, it's I a great movie. It. It's a good movie. And as I mentioned, I mean, the music stuck out considerably, so I wanted to track you down. <laughs> <laughs> now you found me. So as this is, you know, takes place in Australia, did you do a lot of research about sort of native instruments? I definitely hear some didgeridoo in there. Were there any yeah. other instruments kind of mixed into the, to the score? This is what my research did. I mean, we all went off as a team to go hear a didgeridoo player. So I found there were two instruments that were very common, uh, that, that were the prime Australian instruments. One was the didgeridoo, and the other one was actually the boomerang. Huh. And the boomerang, uh, which is, you know, two kind of triangular things, they either um, slide them together, so it goes kind of like shh, or they tack them, uh, tap them, you know, tick, tap, 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 tap. And as far as I could see, that was it. I mean, that was the aboriginal, you know, music fest. <laughs> Not a lot of options, yeah. Yeah, so in order to make it ethnic, um, I went to Brazil, I went to Africa, I went to North America. I mean, every every tribal thing, every odd instrument I could find that, that sounded ethnic, I used. So the Australian ethnic stuff is really a mishmash of world music, you know. Hmm. 
after the film came out, I was in Sydney and I was doing a, a TV interview and I told him the story. I said, you know, I'd, I was supposed to be doing this ethnic music. And the guy said, what's that? The sound of a beer can popping? <laughs> I said, no, I found more than that. But, you know, it, it's not really ethnic, but it sounds ethnic, you know. You know, we've been watching all these movies in order and watched the original Rescuers not too long ago. And especially musically, they're very different. Was that something intentional or do they just kind of let you do whatever you wanted? Or what was sort of the, the background behind how this would reference the original or not? Uh, well, I mean, there were different movies. Mine was really an adventure movie. Um, the one thing that they wanted in the new movie is they wanted to use the Rescuers song, that R-E-S-C-U-E, um, which I use as they call the Rescue Society together. And the score just refers to that tune. Uh, other than that, there is nothing, nothing at all, because the movies are very different. incredible track and i love that sequence of the map and the arrows yeah. and it's sort of this one after another you're meeting all these characters it was very kind of indiana jones-ish was yeah. that something in the back of your mind no it was just um i was just trying to be adventurous that's all and then yeah in the very end of that you do get the dun dun yeah. dun, dun, dun 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 which is a really fun nod to the original Was there much conversation about not having any songs with lyrics in this movie? No. What's interesting is that when Rescuers came out, I thought Rescuers was going to be a big hit. And so did they, because it was such a... I mean, Jeffrey, Jeffrey referred to it as the greatest uh, animated picture ever made, you know, which in some ways I guess it is. But it didn't do all that well at the box office. Yeah. And so it has the, well, I guess, the award for being the last animated movie that Disney did with no songs. Because I think right after that was um, Beauty and the Beast. Before that, I think, was The Little Mermaid and yeah. then Beauty and the Beast. And after that, they've all had songs. It works. It's just it's just unique. Yeah. Um, especially going through all these in order. I think the only other one without songs and lyrics is The Black Cauldron. Oh, really? I never saw that. What's that like? Yeah, that's kind of weird. It's not it? that great. <laughs> yeah, no, that's what I heard. Yeah. But, but I mean, even the original Rescuers, had it didn't have the characters singing, really. It had the Rescue Aid Society right. song, but every other track was a, I forget the name of the lady, but sort of some pop songs it in the was, background. Uh, wasn't it Carol Bear Sager? Uh, that sounds familiar, it, it yeah. Carol, yeah. This kind of this may sound like kind of a dumb question, but you know I also play piano and dabble in music, but I feel like composition is very hard. <laughs> what what inspirations do you take? What's sort of in the back of your mind when you're when you're trying to create a melody? I mean, first of all, yeah, composition is hard. I mean, so get over it. Um, if you're gonna <laughs> if you're thinking about being a composer, it's hard. I mean, it's it really is hard work, and I don't care who's doing it. It's it's hard work. No, when I'm working on a movie, my inspiration really comes from the movie. In this particular thing, we had two main themes. There was the um, the main theme at the beginning uh, with the boy as he's going off to get the eagle. And then there's the um, there's the soaring theme, you know, and. 
we talked a lot about that. Like when the when he frees the eagle and the eagle takes off, we talked about pre-scoring that and, and pre-recording. I was glad we didn't because the animators did a great job. And then I just basically followed what they did. But looking at the images, you get ideas. You know, you just get ideas. I, I generally will hold the idea of the character or of the situation in my head and then try to figure out how I feel about that musically and then try to find the notes. And usually it comes, you know, fairly quick. But then sometimes you get a few notes and then you have to fill it out and turn it into a tune. I remember I worked hard to find the um, the eagle theme. And, but when I found it, it was there. I mean, it was just, oh, man, I go, oh, hey, look at that. Hallelujah. <laughs> you know, it, really came. it was really kind of cool. So sometimes it comes easily. Sometimes it doesn't. And do you just sort of start at a piano and build up from there, or yeah. what's what's your process? Yeah, I'm a piano guy. I um, now when everybody's, I mean, look at my age. You know, it's like John Williams and I and other guys are basically piano guys. I basically work at the piano. I do some synth work. I go back and forth, but most of my inspiration will come at the piano. And um, if I have to sit there and just knock things out and try things over and over and over again. I'll do it on a piano because I can really hear the harmonies yeah. much more clearly on a piano than I can on a synth. And I'm not one to just play it in. I mean, a lot of composers now, particularly the younger guys, will just sit at a, at a computer and play it in. But I don't. I'll sit there and I'll work on it and, you know, take notes out, add notes, take out bars. put. It th I mean, you know, I just chop away at it. I mean, sometimes when you look in the movie, a tune pops in your head and you just go, thank you, God, and you write that down. You know? <laughs> um, but not always. And sometimes it doesn't come at all. You just have to go hunting for it. You know? and, and how, I think you touched on this a little bit, but how is scoring an animated feature different than a live action feature? Is the process different? No, the process is about the same, but there is a big difference between animation and live action is that animation, because it's drawn or because more commonly now it's you know it's um, digital effects uh, it moves very quickly so if you have a character if you had a live action film and somebody had to run from first base to third base that would take a certain amount of time because that's how long it takes for humans to run you know yeah if you had um, Mickey Mouse do it he could do it in two seconds just sure. blah, 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 he's right there you know <laughs> so the, one of the things that's interesting about the rescuers is the rescuers looks as though it's done in real time but in fact everything happens very quickly so the music happens very quickly, and then you have to write it in a way that it, it doesn't sound like it's been sped up. You have to make everything sound as though it's just happening at the normal normal speed. But actually, Rescuers, if you listen just to the album, the music's moving along at a pretty good clip, you know, from scene to scene, transition to transition. I would say that's the biggest biggest thing. And also, you have to be really accurate with, um, with animation. You don't have a lot of wiggle room. You have to be there when the character's there. So, mm -hmm. like, right on the frame. The one of the best moments of Rescuers Down Under, in my opinion, is the very beginning. Oh, yeah, sure. And, uh, you know, Disney, as we've been going through all these, typically starts the movies with, a, with some sort of storybook opening and maybe the camera oh, yeah. pushing through some trees to a castle. And this one really kicks it up a notch. Yeah. <laughs> it begins with this uh, kind of close up of a bug and then just f starts flying across a field. Was that were you part of the early conversations with that opening? Because I feel like the music is a super important part of that that scene. One of the things I recorded was a main title. And it wasn't, I really wasn't quite sure what I was doing yet. So that the original main title is nothing at all like the main titles in the film. Uh, this one was really um, energetic and kicked up a notch, you know, so that when you're sailing across the field of poppies, you really feel like you're going somewhere. 
with all the kind of ethnic drums that don't exist in Australia. <laughs> also, the poppies I don't think exist either. Probably not. But it's it's a it's a beautiful opening, and it's certainly the animators were showing off what they could oh, do yeah. with some of the some yeah. of the newer technology. You know, it's, it's interesting. The animators did go to Australia. Like that's um, that opening is takes place at Ayers Rock. The boy's house is right nearby, and then the boy goes immediately to the forest. Well, there's no forest near Ayers Rock, you know, <laughs> but um, but they put together what they had to put together to make a good show. I'd love to talk a little bit about uh, your theme park work real quick as we yeah. wrap this up. I mean, you worked on Spaceship Earth, Ellen's Energy Adventure, I think, Oh, Canada, Honey, I Shrunk the Audience. What was your favorite theme park project you've worked on and all the, the various ones? I, I swear to God, I don't have a favorite one. I like them all. I really I really enjoyed doing the theme park things. I just did a um, an update on Soaring for Tokyo Sea. Hmm. And the, the show itself is pretty much the same because the, Soaring, no matter where it plays is basically the same show. They changed the ending of it to be able to get you into the park that you're looking at. Sure. But I did a completely new pre-show. And it was just, you know, it was just great to be able to see all the inventiveness and the cleverness that they've done, you know, even for for the people who are waiting to get into the show. Some of the ones I like, um, there was one called Mickey's, Mickey's Audition, which didn't last very long. It was about how Mickey got uh, hired at Disney. Spaceship Earth, I like. I don't know. I mean, I, I, oh, there, there was one we did in France that never came to America called Cinemagique. Yeah, I've actually seen that. I've seen oh, that have in you person. Really? Yeah, Isn't yeah. that a great movie? That's yeah, a great awesome. movie. Jeez. Um, <laughs> yeah, and then Ellen was a great one. That was a lot of that went for 20 years. Um, yes. No, these things, they're just they are just really a lot of fun. And the other thing about them is they're often confusing because because they're so creative. I look at them, I go, okay, I don't know what I'm doing on this one. Uh, I don't know how to figure this one out. But you know, eventually you do, and eventually you get it. And again, it's like animation. It's you, you work with great teams of people. I think of all the jobs I had in movies or TV, the most fun I've had has been in animation and theme parks. I say that over and over and over because it's really the truth. And the best people, they've figured out their problems, they... They know exactly what they're doing, what they want to get out of their show. And those projects often become more beloved than movies sometimes because people go back and see these things so many times and just fall in love with these things. And the music is such a big part of them in the theme parks. Zillions of people see them, that's for sure. You know, yeah. really a lot of people see it. Are you, are you sad when things like Ellen's Energy Adventure get yeah. closed? And, uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a bum, bummer, you know. But I mean, you know, let's face it. I mean, Ellen uh, doesn't look quite the same she does now as when she no, did that 25 really. years yeah. ago. I think the ones that I have right now are um, O Canada, Spaceship Earth is still playing. I think there are a couple that are probably still out there. But... There's a track you wrote called Seasons of the Vine yeah. for California Adventure. I think that yeah. still probably plays in the parks. Uh, I think it plays over the um, system. Yeah. But the show doesn't play. The show was um, was a, had to do with Mondavi, and uh, it played for a short while and then it was taken. But and I think did you do Golden Dreams as well? The Whoopi I Goldberg. I did Golden thing? Dreams. Yeah. yeah, that was okay. a good one. Yeah, <laughs> I did. No, I they they were all fun. I really I really enjoyed them all. 
Yeah, and I don't know this as a fact, but I imagine I've imagined some of your other scores just kind of play throughout the sound systems in some of those parks. Uh, actually, Silverado plays through it, okay. and um, yeah, they play some of the themes. Yeah, I, I've heard them waiting in line. You know. Yeah, I've I've been walking around Disney California Adventure, and and like that's the theme from Angels in the Outfield. <laughs> that's random. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> As we finish up here, could you, is it possible for you to rattle off sort of your five favorite film scores besides your own? This is, what are some of your, your favorites from, oh, I mean, from, from anybody? The, from his, yeah, from anybody that maybe have inspired you or that, or that you just think kind of define movie music? Um, I really probably wasn't aware of movie as having music until I was about 16 or 17. One of the first ones that really hit me in the face was Spartacus of Alex North. I used to think I would listen to Alex North's music and I would think this guy had to be seven feet tall because his music was so, so big, you know. And when I first saw him, I didn't believe it was him because he was just a short little guy. He was like 5'3 hmm. or 5'4, something like that. Another score I like a lot is um, Chinatown by Jerry Goldsmith. Um, of John Williams, oddly enough, the score that I like of his a lot is um, The Reavers. which was from a long time ago. It's uh, it, He got an Academy Award nomination for it. I think it's from the 60s or the 70s. I'm trying to think what else scores I see. Oh, I, I love the score to uh, How to Train Your Dragon. Oh, John, I love John Powell. Yeah, I mean, he's he's terrific. Uh, he's also a great guy. I like, I like Back to the Future of Al Silvestri. Those are sort of my go-to scores, you know. I feel like there's a trend of late that a lot of scores are more kind of droney or more, I feel like they're not as bombastic as they used to be. And I feel like well, your, your work is so like bombastic. <laughs> yeah, but, it, but I love it. But I love it. It's so clear. It just feels so timeless and classic. What do you think about sort of the latest generation? You're, of composers? you're being very nice. What I hear from other people, not from me, but what <laughs> I hear from other people is that the scores are really boring. Yeah, uh, I mean, today's scores are really boring. There are some exceptions. Yeah, um, there are some guys who are really good, com like you know, John Paul. John's a really good composer. Yeah, yeah. But there are a lot of people who come to it from um, uh, a different background, and they maybe didn't study music so well, so they write completely different. And there's also a certain amount of um, sound design that's going into it. Yeah, like a score that I thought was really effective was Arrival, done mm. by. Um, Johan Johansson? Yeah, Johan Johansson, yeah. I mean, I thought that was a really effective score. I mean, musically, it had about five notes in it. But but the stuff <laughs> that he did was really interesting and I thought really effective, you know. So some of the scores, I wouldn't say that doing the old-fashioned scores is the way to do every movie. Sometimes they really need a contemporary one. But I think directors get very confused as to what's going to help out their film. Um, I tell composers and I tell directors, too, the only reason there's music in the film is because it's helping to tell the story. And if it doesn't help tell the story, it shouldn't be there, period, you know. So directors get confused about that, too, because they get intimidated by music or they, they like a pop, uh, a pop group, you know, and they think that'll go well in their film, but it doesn't because it doesn't play the scene. Uh, just to wrap this up, what are some uh, of your latest projects? What are some fun things you're working on that you can tell us about? Oh, well, I, I don't do as much film and TV as I used to. I, um, the last thing I did was a couple of months ago with um, 
Disney doing the, the soaring redo. I've got a movie coming up, I think probably sometime next year. Right now I'm working on concert music. I'm working on a harp and flute concerto with orchestra. So I just keep writing. I'm just a writing fool, you know. So I keep busy. And, and you know, as far as things coming up, I've never, in 30 or 40 years, I've never known what the next thing was going to be. I mean, honestly, <laughs> honest to God, I thought I'd be sitting there forever out of work. And then somebody calls up and you go, oh, here I am working on it. You know, so who knows? Ask me again in a month. And uh, if people want to keep up with you, you can, they can go to brucebroughton.com. Yeah. And I'm in the process of actually updating my website. So if you wait a month or two, it'll get even better, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, Bruce, thank you so much for coming on the show and chatting with me. Um, like I said, your work has influenced my life way more than I ever imagined a few weeks ago. So I well, appreciate it. <laughs> it's nice of you to say. I'm glad that it still works. <laughs> and I uh, remember you listening. You can check us out all over the Internet at Disney 1X1. And if you could leave us a rating or review on iTunes, we would love that. So we will see you next week with... I totally forgot what movie's next. What did we say it is? <laughs> It is Beauty and the Beast. Yeah, Beauty and we'll the Beast. We'll see you then. <laughs> I could have told you that. Thanks, Mike. This has been a lot of fun. All right. I appreciate it. Okay. See ya. Thanks for listening to the Disney One by One podcast. If you have any questions or suggestions, send us an email to Disney1x1 at gmail.com. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Disney1x1 and at Disney1x1.com. We'll be back next week with another exciting episode of the Disney One by One podcast. Disney One by One.